When is the last time you listened to a podcast about web development, web design, and small business and didn't fall asleep? Yes, we cover web development, web design, and small business, but like actual human beings with personalities. If you're a beginner, we're not going to talk over your head. It's more like asking your buddy for help. We have guests, we have fun, and let me tell you, these two can get off on a tangent. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to HTML All The Things Podcast. This is Matt Lawrence and Mike Curran. That's right, everybody. We are back. This is the HTML All The Things Podcast. This episode is titled, Is JavaScript Enough? So the, the objective of this episode is to tell the audience that JavaScript might be enough at the start, but it's a good idea to be able to at least spin up in a new language, something like maybe like a Python or something like that. So we're also going to, so in, in, rather in this episode, we're going to break down popular languages that could complement JavaScript because you can actually make a website with some of these other languages and some of them are very popular, like PHP. If you're a WordPress guy, you know about PHP for sure. So if this sounds interesting to you and you want to support the show, you can go check us out on that Patreon. Leave a review or rating on your podcast app. Join us in our Discord server or share this with your friends. And remember that we also have a Scrimba affiliate link. So if you want to support the show and also get a discount on a Scrimba subscription plan, you can go check out that link, scrimba.com slash links slash hat. And that's spelled H-A-T-T, Mike. Why should we learn a new programming language? We already have enough stuff to do. Why are we doing this? Yeah, I'm just putting I'm putting more stuff on your plate. Uh, and for I'll, I'll get into the reasons. Honestly, like I'll just jump right in because JavaScript is great. Okay, like honestly, I do all my work pretty much right now in pure JavaScript, and I don't have too many complaints for high level stuff, you know, basic websites. I'm not making apps that are going out to the world of like millions of people a second, you know, like we're not like the apps that I'm making, some of them are bigger, like, you know, they'll get like a hundred thousand hits in a month, right? Like that's like, that's enough. Like that's, it's quite a bit. It requires some knowledge of scaling, requires some knowledge of database architecture, but it's not like I need every single like ounce of performance out of this server or out of this website. You know what I mean? Um, so I, I choose to like continue to de- delve into JavaScript, but as the sites start to get more specialized, as the functionality starts to get more specialized on the sites, I'm finding myself starting to reach for other tools in the toolbox. And I'll explain. JavaScript is a general purpose language. Okay, it was built from what I've, from the like mythology of JavaScript, it was built in like a week. So even though it's evolved since then, like a hundred thousand times, it's still very high level, very general purpose. It's not going to be like to the metal. There's a lot of compile, like transpiling that needs to happen until it gets to machine code. So it's not the most performative. No one claims that it's the fastest language out there. A lot of what JavaScript does well is that it's interpretable from many different, you know, uh, devices and resources. And because it's the web runs on everything, it's just easy to build once and then deploy everywhere. Right. So that's the power of JavaScript. The power, what's not the power of JavaScript is like, I need to write byte code for this microcontroller, or I need to scrape this massive database of millions and millions of uh, lines and get the information that I need out of it. 
and stuff like that. Like that's not what JavaScript is for. And as you start specializing in certain types of development and as you start expanding your reach inside of inside of your company, maybe you might find yourself looking at stuff that isn't JavaScript. And I think it's important to at least acknowledge that it's out there and have the ability to learn new languages. Right. It's not easy. I'm not going to say like, hey, it's, you know, it's super easy. But if you have good programming fundamentals, you understand conditionals, loops, data structures and algorithms, object-oriented programming, types, if you understand the concepts of programming, it's not ridiculously difficult to pick up a new language. A lot of times there are very simple parallels to be like, okay, I know JavaScript, this is how I write a loop in JavaScript. And then you look at something like PHP and there's a, you know, a direct comparison to like, how do you write a loop in PHP? And yeah, it's different, but it's just different syntax, right? It gets a little bit more complicated as you go to lower level languages, more performant languages, because then you're talking about memory. You know, you have to, you have to like do your own garbage collections, assign memory slots, and then parallelization. So like you have to do like multi-core, multi-core programming where like this will run in parallel to this. And you are the one that has to like manage when it's running, even though like with, with JavaScript, it's very single threaded. Or if you want multi-threaded, you use something like service workers, but you can't really manage that. Like there's just a lot of complexity that JavaScript hides from you. And that is available in other languages. That is a, like definitely a step, like quite a large step that you need to take to learn. But it's not impossible, is that what I'm saying? And when you have that toolkit, when you have that like thought process that, hey, this is just another tool that I need to learn, it makes it a little bit easier to jump through that barrier. There is a thing, too, when it comes to kind of coding at those like low level, like microcontroller level, where you really start to think about the hardware, like you mentioned the memory. But there's also, you know, we, we were constantly told, and I think this is memory related. It's been a long time, but they, we, we were always told, oh, you blew a stack is a common thing. Like you'd run a couple of functions, something that you would do in JavaScript with no problem. Hell, you'd run a hundred functions in JavaScript and, you know, it'd be fine in most cases. But then in these little microcontrollers, oh, this one function and there's only two in total. And this one function was a little too complex. You blew a stack and it crashed and sometimes it doesn't. Why is that? Oh, because you ran the first function first and then the second. The second function is complex and you got to really kind of like dig in to those problems. But I do actually have, there's a thing on TikTok that's been going around and it's allegedly the creator of JSON saying we should stop using JavaScript, you know, we really shouldn't be using it. And then he, he lists a few reasons. Um, because it, like, I, I mean, largely, again, I'm paraphrasing from memory, but because he, it could, because it's very much like a generalist language and that, you know, I know that he mentions that, you know, there are other languages that are being developed and are being created, but no one really pays attention to it because JavaScript kind of has the hype behind it. It has the content behind it uh, and it has the support behind it. And so what, like, what do you think of that? Is this, is that angle playing any part of this episode? Is this like, is there any alarm bell going off maybe that's saying, you know, hey, you know, JavaScript's really huge right now. And if you learn it, you know, there's lots of jobs out there, but you should learn how to do another language because JavaScript may get torn down uh, uh, like immediately or not immediately, eventually. Or is this, you know, is this very much like there's always someone calling for something to be removed because there is a problem. But in in turn, everything is flawed because humans are flawed and humans invented it. And there's like, you know, you start going down the philosophy train almost a little bit in that way. Yeah, I. JavaScript's not going anywhere. 
um, nor is it really losing popularity. It's only gaining popularity. Like this argument would have held some weight 20 years ago when JavaScript was a janky scripting language with no, without any libraries around it and other languages are much more mature and much better. Um, but JavaScript has matured. It has other layers on top of it now. So where I see JavaScript going is becoming better. So like a lot of the complaints of JavaScript come from seasoned developers that are used to type safe languages that are compiled, that are easier to detect issues with before you put it out in production and have a million people clicking on something that breaks everything, right? Like JavaScript has that issue, period, right? Stuff like TypeScript is coming along and becoming very, very, very important in the JavaScript ecosystem. Like most jobs that I see now are requiring some level of knowledge in TypeScript. I myself am taking TypeScript extremely seriously. In a previous episode, I mentioned that I'm going to be learning, like diving into like the nitty gritty of TypeScript because I just need it. I need a better baseline across the entire code base when I have like a million different things talking to each other. They have to be type safe. Like everything has to make sense in that sense uh, so that I'm not sending incorrect information somewhere. It's a security risk. Like if you don't know what's coming from your from one function to another function, you might be sending unnecessary information like an email address that shouldn't be sent. And all of a sudden you can be it can be accessed in the front end and a bunch of people's emails can be exposed. Right. So there are serious issues with the way JavaScript runs in the browser. It's not going anywhere. <laughs> that's not that's not not going to happen. Like JavaScript is the thing that's powering the web. It will power the web for the next 10 years, at least probably longer. So that shouldn't stop you from learning it in any way, shape or form. And JavaScript is still probably the most important language to learn right now. If you're trying to get a job in the industry at this very moment, there are other languages that are popular, really popular. And I'm going to mention them right now, like in a second, but yeah, I, the, I get the arguments, but I don't get the conclusion. I guess that that's the thing. Like it's not going anywhere. It's only going to get better. So let's jump in uh, to the, which programming languages would, should you learn after you've kind of learned JavaScript for different reasons. So I'll give, I'll give a breakdown of the programming language about kind of what it's, how it's different from JavaScript and then where you would use it instead of JavaScript. And a lot of what I'm going to be saying, like JavaScript can do the, these things, but these languages handle it better and easier usually. Okay. First one here and the one that I'm most familiar with, because uh, I've used it more than any other one in the, in, in the ones that I'm going to be talking about is Python. Okay. So Python is the most versatile language probably after JavaScript. It can do pretty much everything that JavaScript can do, but then it can also... It, it can't run on the web. That's the only like difference that the only core difference, it's a very easy to read language. So it's simple. It doesn't have any semicolons or brackets or anything like that. Everything is indentation based. So if it creates a very easy to structure and read code base, it has a huge community of libraries, like because of its simplicity and easy, like entry on ramp, it makes it so that a lot of people start there and then continue their career there as well. And so that allows for a huge community of people to come in and start building these like massively important libraries on top of, of Python, libraries that can allow it to do like backend routing, libraries that do very complex mathematics, libraries that do data analysis, machine learning, all this stuff that like Python excels at. Like when I think Python, I think a lot like math. And I also think scripting and scraping. 
right? So when I need to do some heavy scripting, when I need to like go into my files, rewrite a bunch of folders, recreate a bunch of uh, structure, add additional files that I need to do on like a grand level, Python is something that I'll reach for because it's pretty performant in those ways and it's easy to read and write and maintain. JavaScript can do those things, like scripting. I've done Node.js scripting. It's just, it's it's almost like it's a secondary thought in JavaScript, whereas Python, it's like the main purpose of it, right? Like this is what Python was made for. Um, and scraping as well, it has some really, really good web scraping libraries that'll make it super easy to go through and find different divs and find different like matching elements and regex different things and make it so that it's like, it's just, it's meant for that, right? Again, doable in JavaScript, but with Python's, additional libraries and it's massive massive community like it is huge it's better at certain tasks i, I got a question about python so i um, i remember in i don't know maybe it was high school or maybe it was even just outside of college but uh i remember python being recommended to me because it is you were saying like the like the syntax is pretty human readable right it's rather simple but one of the things that i struggled with was something like python is that i kind of think in project and so with a website, I'll think, oh, I'll make a, you know, I'll make a to-do app. I'll make, I'll make a blog. I'll make, you know, the list goes on. But with Python, because it's, because my, at least my lessons at the time were just me moving numbers around. I didn't have an idea of a project. It was sort of like, I guess I could add a bunch of numbers. And one of the things that was really weird was that I had, there was no GUI that was just sort of natively there, at least not at the time. I believe there still isn't. I haven't touched Python in a number of years, but with web development, you can kind of, like I said, think in project and you have HTML, CSS, JS or front end frameworks available to create the UI and to make it interactable. And then some of the stuff gets tossed to the server and, you know, you'll use PHP or whatever, even JavaScript on the back end. And then you use that and everything's sort of built together in a way. So what, like, what do you say to that? And I don't know whether you'd want to give a recommendation to beginners or what, because we always say, oh, you know, think of a, think of a, you know, a project you may want to build. And that'll be the thing that you build for your portfolio with Python. Yeah. You could look up projects, I'm sure, but I don't know. Like, I can't think of one offhand. I have no, like, oh, I'd love to build, you know, whatever in Python. Yeah, so I think, again, Python, you don't really think UI, although there is some UI and there's also some like graphing abilities and stuff like that. So one thing you think with Python is math. So if you have large data sets that you need to go through and do some sort of calculations on, Python has like a NumPy library that does really good calculations and graphing and all that stuff. It also has Pandas, which does really good job graphing and whatever, like graphing calculators type things. Um, so that's one thing that you can think of directly for Python if you're trying to do a portfolio project in it. The other thing is like, let's say I'll give an example. Um, you have a CSV with a bunch of information about stocks, right? Like, you know, graphical, like oh, historical information about stocks. And you want to you want to turn that CSV maybe into an API for others to consume. OK, so Python has a really good set of libraries that will take that'll let you import the CSV parse through the CSV and then create like a JavaScript API out of it or a JSON API, I should say, that will be accessed from, could be accessed from anywhere. So you can use something like Flask, which is a HTTP server built on top of Python 
and again, just parse through a CSV that you have on your computer and create a JSON API that can be accessed from anywhere. And it's just, again, easy, it's easier to do it in Python. It's not like it's impossible to do that with a Node.js server, but it feels like whenever you're parsing data, whenever you're parsing files and data and somehow manipulating them and recreating them in a different format, I, I kind of think Python for that a lot. And I don't have a very like concrete explanation for that, but I've done it in both and it just looks cleaner. So for like for the beginner, it would just make sense to look up inspiration for projects then because it's less that, oh, I want to make the next Facebook and more yeah. that because like who, who, who just I mean, I'm sure there's some people out there, but in general, I've never really heard of anyone go like, man, I just really want to make something that can really crunch these numbers <laughs> you know what I'm, you know what I'm trying to say? Like for, for a portfolio project or something like that. Um, cause people will make like a Spotify scraper or something for their, their web development portfolio project. And they're making, you know, their favorite songs and blah, blah, blah. And so there's some like personal motivation behind that. But like, personally, I don't have any, not that I know of, I don't have any mathematical mathematics based desires, I guess you could say. Like, it depends. Like I think we're thinking outputs a lot in terms of UIs, Mm -hmm. And with Python, it's not really a UI that you get an output with. It's usually like something in the log in the CLI, like a, some sort of information that you want out of something. That's the weird part of it, right? Like, that's the weird part of it. That's what makes it so like an eyebrow razor. Like, it's like, oh, I can use this. But why? Household expenses, for instance. Like, let's say you wanted to track your household expenses and then like you have like a big sheet of household expenses and then you want the you want something that can go through and like split them up based on whatever parameter, maybe, you know, how much your wife spent in December. Right. Right. Like, I, like it's probably easy to do in like Excel, but I, it's something more complicated than that. Let's say Python could like help you do something like that and then export another CSV for you to like look at. Right. Right. So like that, I think that's the, the mentality that you have to think. It's like, you're not getting a UI out of it. You're not getting something that you can constantly like check on. You're getting a way to like, parse large data and then get some data back from that. Okay. In some, in some like file or just text form, something like that. Okay. Next thing here, uh, this is a big one for web developers, obviously is PHP. Uh, PHP has been around pretty much just as long as JavaScript. Uh, it's used a lot in the world of CMSs. So think when you think WordPress, I believe Joomla, uh, when you're thinking of something like Magento, a lot of these massive enterprise level CMSs are built on top of something like PHP, uh, Laravel, which is a more modern kind of framework on top of PHP. It's still being used. It's still probably the largest server side language uh, for web development, regardless of its popularity, regardless of what people say online, it's massive. Okay. I've worked in cor corporations that are just entrenched in these massive technologies like Magento uh, and there's just nothing that can get them to move away from it. So it is one of those languages that if you want to, let's say, have a holistic approach to web development where you can fit into almost any team, if you learn JavaScript and you learn PHP, it opens up your opportunities pretty heavily because you'll be able to plug into like more legacy projects with PHP and then be able to use that data, whatever the content management system serves 
and do something with it in the JavaScript side of things on the front end, right? So that's why I have it really high up here. That's why it's an important one to learn outside of JavaScript. The disadvantage with PHP is that it's very similar to JavaScript in the sense that it's not very type safe. Now, I, I believe newer versions of PHP have type safety built into it. There is some sort of type safe that you can do, but it's still not like a type safe language. And it's it's got some weird like hiccups and it's got some weird syntax because it's again like it was built. It feels like it was built to be more general purpose and is good in a lot of ways, but it has it has some issues in in terms of code readability. It has some really weird syntax issues um, that I personally am not a huge fan of. But again, it's massive and it can do anything you need it to do, especially in the back end, obviously. Yeah, you'll you'll see this like for me, it's like you most commonly see this with with WordPress. And I'm sure, you know, any web developer, whether you love it or hate it, are going to see WordPress at some point. Uh, I remember you and I, Mike, one time went to a small business thing and there's a bunch of coders there building stuff. And like this one guy kind of tells me, like, oh, what are you building? And I'm like, oh, like we just like at the time we were just sort of building up our web dev agency sort of portfolio of clients. And so I was like, we're not building, you know, necessarily a project. We're just sort of building a business at this at this stage. This was a number of years ago. And I remember he pulled me aside. He's like, oh, like, I'm building this app. I forget what the app was now, but he's like kind of said it in hush tones. I was like, oh, like, what are you building it in? And he's like, PHP. And he was like kind of really secretive about it. And I was like, okay. And he's like, yeah, he's like, I know people like frown upon it. People hate it. He's like, but it's so fast. And I was like, oh, that's cool. And he's like, oh, you seem kind of receptive you know, that that's PHP. I'm like, well, I'm not going to like, Hey, this guy's, this guy's working on a PHP project. Everyone take a look, take a look at what failure looks like. You know, it's ridiculous. <laughs> like, come on now. It's like PHP is whispered in hush tones and back alleyways of God knows where. So you're going to see yeah, it's PHP. Weird. It's around like <laughs> it, it, it's weird that it's treated that way because it is so massive and there's such good tools built on top of it. Again, Laravel, like I mentioned it before, check it like look it up like that that server-side framework especially when pat when combined with view that's a powerhouse like that is that powers a significant portion of the web right now and it has every modern feature you could possibly imagine in it like all the different patterns for authentication database database orms like everything you could possibly imagine it's it's a beast so if you're going from like legacy php developer and you want to modernize a little bit laravel like I can't, I, I, there's not many faults in it. Like it has everything. It's really awesome. Uh, next language, Go, Golang, uh, language created by Google. Uh, this is something that I don't have a lot of experience with. One of the projects I was working on was using it as a backend language. I was helping a little bit in the sense of just overseeing and connecting to it. But what, what it really comes down to is it's also a backend language, a lot like used primarily in web development for web development backends, but it's focused on high performance and efficiency. So it's really like if you're building something that you know is going to get hit hard, right? Like you're, you're like, you're talking like millions of uh, hits, you know, a month, you need concurrent connections. You need a way to manage that in an efficient way. Go is probably your go-to right now for efficient backend language. Now, there is some argument to say that Rust, and I'll talk about that in a second, has that capability as well. But Go's uh, advantage on top of being really, really fast is that it's also really clean. Like the language itself, if you look at the syntax, it doesn't have a lot of like the 
memory writing that you would expect. Like you can't, you can do some of that, but it does a lot of that for you. It looks a little bit like Python. I want to say like it has that really, really clean simplicity that Python has obviously with a little bit added on to it because it is high performance. So you need a little bit way more typing It's very type safe. Like it has some de depth to it. Let's say like, it's really easy to like get into it, but it ha you can do a lot with it as well. So you can think of this as like, if you're building your own cloud for your company, a lot of that can, can be done in go now. And that's why Google obviously you know, created the languages for their own cloud development stuff. Uh, so it's a serious language. It's very much supported right now. It's on the up and up. A lot of what you're going to see in like some of the deeper web development circles, they're going to be talking about Go and, you know, mixing Go in with like a server side front, like a, a, a front end stack or something like that. You'll see like Go and React and stuff like that. So, um, it's an interesting one. Uh, it's one that I'm keeping an eye on. I don't know if it's going to be the next one I learn, um, but it's definitely on on like in the docket of maybe if what, some of the projects that I'm currently working on do need to scale heavily, maybe some of their APIs that we're writing right now in Express Node.js, which is JavaScript, might have to be rewritten in something like Go. And the next thing here, and something that's kind of similar in the sense that it is also extremely performant, is Rust. So Rust is memory safety, like that's like key, key, key in Rust. It offers no garbage collection. Uh, so you, you understand what, what garbage collection is, is that when you assign a variable and then you use a variable, uh, if you're not using it again, somewhere down the line in your app, something needs to remove it from memory so that something else can add to that memory. Well, with languages like Rust and like a lower level language like C, you wouldn't have that be removed automatically. Whereas something like JavaScript, I, I believe Go, Python, PHP, they have garbage collectors that will go in and see that, hey, you're not using this variable anymore. We're going to remove it from memory. If you need it again, we'll put it back into memory. Right? Like that's all automatic. And there's some really big advantage of that because obviously you don't have to worry about every single, you know, uh, memory address that you've assigned and reassigned. Uh, but there's also some negative to that because sometimes garbage collection can happen right before you need to use it again. And then all of a sudden you need to load it back into memory that can be slower or maybe it could even interrupt something like maybe it interpreted that you wanted to remove it or it should be removed, but you actually need to use it in the next step or something. And then it could actually cause a crash. Uh, so garbage collection is kind of a double-edged sword. So Rust, there's no garbage collection. Um, that, there's probably some, I don't know. Like I, I don't, I, again, I haven't used it heavily. I've, I've looked into it. I've done a tutorial on it a little while ago, uh, but it is a much more lower level language. Like we're talking Rust can be used to program microcontrollers here. So it is on that level. Like you're, you're, you're programming to something just above assembly. Okay, so if you're going like binary is first, then you're going to assembly is second in terms of how, how low to the hardware it is, Rust would be just above assembly and just around the C level, right? Like C level is just above uh, assembly as well. Uh, when would you use this? Uh, so WebAssembly. WebAssembly is a language for the web where it allows you to do front end code in something like a lower level language like Rust. 
And this allows you to make super high performant applications similar to like, if you look at Figma, you could see that there's like so much going on in Figma. You're moving around. There's a million different things loading in the background. They wouldn't be able to do those kinds of things without WebAssembly, right? Like they're using a lot of little things in WebAssembly that like speed everything up that JavaScript just can't do. And same with like online or, or like front end processing of videos. So there's something called FFmpeg. I'm sure a lot of you have heard about it for like their computers where you can convert a video from one format to another. There's FFmpeg written in Rust for the web. And what that allows you to do is literally have a web app or embed it into your web, web app that can take it and live transcode something right in the browser. So you don't have to hit a server to transcode, which is super cool. And it's very performant because again, it's written in something like Rust in WebAssembly, which is very, very low level. So there's a lot of little things that like, if you need to get as much performance out of them as you can, that's where you start reaching for something like Rust. The other thing with Rust is that some of Web3, so Solana, for instance, and there's, I think, other, other uh, uh, blockchains are being powered by Rust as well. So the, the smart contracts that you write have to be pretty low level. And because of that, Rust kind of is becoming more and more popular. So I, here's a here's a question for for you here. So if you wanted to to make a web app, like let's say you're going to use this FFmpeg thing, and one of your web apps or one of the more popular web apps out there is you know merge PDF, convert my file, blah 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 blah. The list goes on. So like let's say you're using F, FFmpeg to like convert convert your file on, on the web, and you 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 want to make one of those like traditional websites where it's like upload my audio file and then I'll send you a link to your email where you can download the file. That's something that this would do, right? Is that, is that correct? So my question with something like this is, is, okay, let's say you are just sort of, let's just say a standard web developer, if you will, um, where you're just like making sites for small to medium business clients, whatever, blah, blah, blah. You can do custom code. You can do this and that, but you're more or less like just JavaScript, HTML, CSS, and, you know, maybe like a React or something like that. When do you sort of branch out to something like this? Would you recommend that someone in in that case and in, in those shoes, like start to learn things like this for web apps? And the reason why I ask that is because off the top of my head, this is sort of like that conversion web app is the only thing that I can really think of that you would use this for. And then to learn a whole new language for it, how like... Is that crazy for me to think that? Because even if you're like, well, you can convert other things, you know, maybe not with FFmpeg, but with WebAssembly and you use some other things and, you know, yada, yada. But how often are you really converting things unless you work at, I guess, one of these web app companies that make these things? So, like, how how feasible is this to, like, the regular web dev that decides they're going to open, like, they're going to just make a little bit of web tooling? Is this something you would use or would you do it in, I guess, arguably the more inefficient way, which is somehow with JavaScript? Because I'm sure there's a way someone has figured out. Yeah, like that's the thing. Like everything you can do with this, you can do with JavaScript, but it'll just be slower. And 99% of the time, that's fine, right? Like you're talking milliseconds or nanoseconds or microseconds, whatever. Um, where you would reach for this is when you're starting to get into enterprise level software. Again, like if you're looking at Figma, Figma is a massive corporation. The throughput through that website and just how much it can handle, like on screen, I've seen so many things on, on in a Figma board all being rendered. The only way you can do that is with optimizations like this, right? 
some of that is done on the back end and so, a lot of that is done on the front end. So you'll load a lot of information from the back end, but you'll do all this processing on the front end. So you're not destroying your servers. So really when you want to learn this is when you need it or when you're starting to get to the point where you're like, I want to work for a fang company. I want to work for like a, a large enterprise level company and I want to differentiate myself. So if you want, like, again, like Netflix, something like Netflix, Netflix probably has a lot of rust going on either in the back end or the front end, because a lot of rust isn't just for the front end. You can do separate APIs in rust just on the back end so that they're really low level. If you have one API that's being pegged in something like PHP, rewrite it in rust, you're already gaining performance right away. Right. So there's just, when you're getting to the point where you need efficiency or when you're getting to the point when you're trying to level up into the next stage of your career, that's when you start looking at something like Rust because it's not easy. Rust is not an easy language to learn, period. Like can't can't overstate that enough. But it does, it will differentiate you from the competition because of its kind of barrier to entry. To, to, having said that, I'm pretty sure it's something like C would be harder to learn than Rust right now, right? So like, that's where I would put it. Like it's, it's not harder than C, like it's a little bit easier than C. It's a modern version of it. Right. Okay. With a little bit more abstraction. Right. Uh, so, and it has a lot of resources behind it, but it's like, I mean, no garbage collection. You know what that is? Like that's blowing your stack. That's what, blow, that's what blowing your stack means essentially. So what I, I guess I'm thinking of is, one of the most common things, I guess, for converting images would be social media sites. They would use something maybe like this because they'd be converting, um, I mean, pictures, but also audio files if they support that, videos, which obviously include video and audio, um, things like that. And so they would be, so you would be the person behind the Facebook post button where you like upload media and then there's your conversion. So it's it goes beyond my initial sort of off the, off the top of my head web app of like, hey, we'll convert our, convert your files for you and you can download them within the next 10 days or whatever. Um, and I guess like this type of stuff, maybe, and, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, is one of the most common things that people will try to do recently, which is weird, is a lot of the clients I've been talking to or prospective clients as well, is they want to run web uh, videos without YouTube. They don't want to upload to YouTube. They don't want to pay, of course. They want to just throw it onto their their site. And I'll say every time, like, I don't advise it because the amount of programming or computing power required to convert a video on the fly to allow your people to be able to uh, change the video quality from 1080p to 720p to 480p to whatever is astronomical in comparison to a regular website. Like it sounds really foolish and it sounds just like, Oh, you know, we can just upload videos because you see videos all over the place. But when you think about it, where you're seeing videos hosted specifically, not embedded, but hosted are usually the bigger companies, Vimeo, YouTube, of course, Facebook. And so now this stuff is kind of like, now that I've kind of sat with it and you've explained it now, it's kind of starting to make a little more sense that way. And then in those situations, saving one second for 10 million users can save your costs for your own data center by like also that much money or something. Because every second, like every second of, of time that you're using your servers is money. It buys you scalability too, in a way. Correct. Yeah. So like it is a really important concept. Not everyone needs it. Most people don't, in fact. Mm-hmm. It's only when you get 
to that next level. Uh, and speaking of the next level is C++. So never use C++, but whenever I look at a gaming tutorial, uh, a lot of game engines will use C++. It's a lower level language, it's a system level language, right? It's not, it's, it's above, like C is lower than it, but again, it's above C. It has a lot of the same similarities in the sense that you can do a lot of really, really performant coding. It's similar to Rust in that sense. So it's really, really fast. And in game development, when you're rendering millions of pixels or you're rendering a bunch of different objects, every piece of performance you can get out of your game is critical, right? So it's important to, it's important to like learn this stuff if you want to go into something like game development or maybe real-time monitoring systems. Like a lot of that is done in C++. I don't have much else to say on it because again, I don't, I haven't used it. I haven't dived into it too much. I don't plan on it. Like I'm not, I'm not going to probably get into like traditional game dev anytime soon, but if you are planning on it, C++ might be the way to go. Well, you can even just kind of think about it in, in terms of look at the amount of JavaScript it requires, how many lines of JavaScript it requires to say, create a brand new div and then style it. You know, it could be 15 lines of JavaScript just because you're like, dot style this, dot style that, dot style this. And maybe there's a more efficient way to do that that I haven't been shown. I haven't never seen it. But just the other day, I was just adding a little bit of custom code to a web a Webflow uh, site, just a little div that, you know, Webflow didn't support sort of natively. And um, it just got to the point where I was like, why is there 14 lines of JavaScript here? Like, all I want to do is show or hide this occasionally. And so I ended up just, add, you know, adding some custom CSS because I was just, you know, I was just working. I wasn't trying to make it as efficient as possible. And so in my refactor after getting it working is I was like, I'm just going to make some, like put some CSS and sure, well, maybe it's the same amount of lines in CSS, but I'd rather have it. I'd rather have my styling primarily in CSS than in JavaScript. And the reason why I say that is because think about games, styling menus, HUDs changing all the time. Imagine JavaScript controlling all of that while while the game is in the background, which is the actual graphically demanding thing. So, I mean, C++, it being, you know, a different language. I know we're not touching on it much, but it being a different language for something like that. The use cases kind of speak for themselves, I think. Yeah, I, th I think it makes sense, too. Exactly. OK, last thing, uh, I've kind of coupled them together, but Swift and Kotlin. So this is mobile programming language for mobile app development. Uh, Swift is what you would program iOS and I guess macOS apps in now. Um, and Kotlin would be what you would program uh, Android apps in right now. So these are native programming languages to those uh, systems. And what they allow you to do is access any hardware level APIs that are available for iOS or Android. Uh, they also can do a lot of really high performance animation stuff because again, they're right down to the core of the API. And if you're looking for something that, hey, my app needs to be as smooth as possible. It needs to perform as reliably and as predictably as possible for millions of people that are gonna be using it on their mobile devices. That's when you wanna start reaching for something like Swift and Kotlin. I know, in, on this podcast in the past, we've talked a lot about cross-platform development, and I still believe in it heavily. Like if you need to create a quick application that will, you know, wrap your website in 
a more mobile friendly version and allow for update for, for notifications and maybe some other hardware level stuff. That's fine to do in cross-platform development. And again, probably for 90% of projects, that's what it is. Like that's what most projects are, is just wrapping maybe a web app. Um, but when you're talking something that requires full hardware access, like I don't know, cam a camera app, like you're making your own camera app, something like an Instagram, right? An Instagram is a perfect use case for when you shouldn't use cross-platform technology and when you should go heavily into your, your separate Swift and Kotlin applications because those allow you much more control over the camera. Those allow you much better access to the storage of the device. They allow you really nice, smooth animations. Everything's quick. Everything looks very clean and like it was made for that respective device. You can get really close to something like React Native but at the end of the day, it's not going to be one-to-one -one exact to an actual mobile, like native application. So if you want to learn that, it's Swift and Kotlin are both cut from the same cloth a little bit. Uh, Java is the basis of Kotlin. Swift is Objective-C, uh, which takes some inspirations from Java, but is its own language. And um, very heavily object-oriented languages not super easy to learn coming from a JavaScript background. But again, if you're in that space of like, hey, I'm at my company and they need to build an application and I know that's coming up, uh, maybe I should kind of dive into learning these languages so that I can be part of that process. That's that's the main <laughs> thought process for me is being like, why would you use Swift or Kotlin? That, like, that would be the biggest driver if you see the need coming up in your company or for yourself, for your own projects. We've dabbled in a little bit of uh, mobile app development and not, not with Swift or Kotlin, but with the sort of uh, conversion, if you will, like you mentioned, the cross-platform development tools like Flutter and React Native. Uh, you know, Mike and I have dabbled with Apache Cordova and you make sort of like a single page, uh, in our case, a single page, very simple HTML, CSS, JS app. Uh, and then you wrap it, if you will, with Cordova or compile it with Cordova. However, that worked. It's been a number of years since I've touched it. And then it uh, spits out whatever you want. So I made an APK well, like a long time ago for a website I was working for. That is uh, sadly closed since then. But I mean, it worked. People use it and people downloaded it. And then we got it on the App Store and went through the uh, or not the App Store. It was uh, just for Android. So the Play, the Play Store. And, you know, we went through the thing. And I mean, it's one of those. It's one of those things. So it's, it's good to I was actually going to ask you, Mike, if uh, if Android got away from Java, it kind of sounds like it doesn't. I mean, I don't think it can ever like get fully away from Java unless they like really start really start refactoring some stuff. Kotlin but. is a better version of what Java was, right? Like Kotlin is much better than Java, to be fair, like when you're when you're using it. But it's very Java-esque. I remember you and I were trying to get what was it? We were trying to get. I think it was like the Java, my first app just for fun. One day we were like working we finished our work and we're like, yeah, I mean, we'll do the, my first app for uh, Android. And like you and I had no idea what the hell was going on. And we like, we could like, we got it working only because we copied and pasted and you and I are normally used to putting it together and then, you know, breaking it or adding another line of text or whatever. And we just could not get it working. It was like, okay, App development for us. <laughs> We're out of here. And that was uh, that was the end of that. So it's good to see an update on that. Yeah. And I think that's it. Uh, like, again, point of this episode. There are other languages out there. JavaScript isn't the be all end all of languages. It is a great language, though. It's not going anywhere. I'm not saying you have to learn another language to survive, but it does help to kind of branch out a little bit. 
not only to like just get your mind going, but to also maybe use something else to build a more purpose-driven application layer. And, you know, having that skill set, having that thing in your toolbox that you're able to pick up another language can help with your imposter syndrome, will help you learn JavaScript better because you'll understand other components that the other languages do differently. And I've always kind of said that that helps you think differently about what you're learning in your main language. So like, there's a lot of benefits. It's not for everyone. You don't have to drop everything that you're doing and all of a sudden start learning Rust today. That's not the point. But if you have some time and you're willing to try a challenge, try a new language. I, I think you're right. Like try a new, if, if, if you're willing to try, you know, a challenge in a certain, you know, area, like we said, the file conversion is the one that sticks out in my brain the most, then, you know, try Rust or whatever. Or if you have like a project that's coming up with it, or if you're trying to apply to a job, or job types that have that type of thing, because I don't think we're recommending here and like, correct me if I'm wrong, Mike, recommending that everyone just start learning about eight languages all of a sudden and everyone start <laughs> yeah. going, you know, start going crazy. It's like, you know, if you're learning something and you're in the middle of learning it and you want to keep learning that, like, go ahead and do that. But, you know, th- just just be aware that there are other languages out there. And if you, you know, get sick and tired of websites and you're just like, I just can't stand this anymore. Maybe instead of you know, completely leaving tech, you could transition to something like mobile app development with Swift or Kotlin or, you know, become more of just like the back end person or more of the uh, yeah the back end person with like the conversions with rust or maybe you want to get into gaming c plus plus those type of things so there's just other options out there and there is a path to transitioning like mike mentioned the conditional statements and those type of things usually hold true different syntax but you know there's still if statements and there's still decision making being done and loops and those type of uh, kind of basic programming um, staples but that's it as mike said that concludes this episode my brain is completely turned off. I can't, we've, we've recorded, if you listen to the last episode, this is, we've recorded last episode and this episode together. Uh, I am completely wiped. I'm out of talking juice, as I said in the other episode. So remember we are on Patreon. That's patreon.com slash slash HTML, all things. Check out the tiers. Give that a go. And many thanks to our $3 tier patrons, Ryan Gashel from blue black digital on blueblackdigital.com. Tim from the web hacker on the webhacker.com. Jason from geek life radio via geekliferadio.com. Michael Curie from MC web studio via mcwebstudio.ca. Magnus from yes, web via yesweb.se. Jeff from Twitter via at Jeff McHale. Fire and season via fire Gunner brunette via gunner brunette.com. Watoto coding via watoto coding.com and Garrett Segal, as well as level of financial planning via www.levelupfinancialplanning.com. Whew. Didn't take a breath for that whole list. Probably should have. Remember, we're also we also have a Scrimba affiliate link if you want to learn with their interactive media player code editor. We have a link that will allow you to save on any of their subscription plans. Remember, they also have free courses if you just want to give it a try. Our link is scrimba.com/link/hat, and hat is spelled H-A-T-T. And finally. Last but not least, we'd like to give a shout out to Michael LaRocca, contributing author on htmlallthethings.com. Michael is the author of the self-taught, the X-Generation blog at selftaughttxg.com. Feel free to leave a comment or review on the platform that you are listening to this on. And this outro will sign us off. You've been listening to HTML All The Things Podcast. 
web development, web design, and small business. We hope you've gotten some useful and practical information from this show. And we hope you appreciate that we talk to you like human beings. And we hope you had some fun. We'll be back soon. But in the meantime, hit us up on social media, on Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon at HTML All The Things. And on Twitter at HTML Everything. Until next time, this is HTML All The Things. Signing off.